Thanks for downloading Development Drums. This is episode 17, and today we'll be talking about the US and Africa. I'm joined by Chris Blattman, an assistant professor of political science at Yale, and by Todd Moss from the Center for Global Development, and a former State Department official working on Africa. We'll be discussing President Obama's speech in Ghana on Saturday, July the 11th, 2009. Development Drums is a podcast about international development issues. My aim is to discuss issues in more depth than is possible in the mainstream media, and to give my guests a chance to explain their point of view. You can download Development Drums from iTunes, and of course you can set iTunes to download it automatically whenever there's a new episode to listen to. You can also download Development Drums from the website, which is at developmentdrums.org, where you can also post comments or questions about the episodes. We have a Development Drums group on Facebook, where you can suggest future topics, guests or questions. And you can follow Development Drums on Twitter as well. On July the 11th, President Obama made his first trip to Sub-Saharan Africa, and he chose Ghana as the venue for a major speech about Africa. To talk about President Obama's speech and the US government's Africa policies more generally, I'm joined today by two well-known Africa watchers. Chris Blackman is an assistant professor of political science at Yale. Chris's research examines the causes and consequences of civil war, the reintegration of ex-combatants, and post-conflict economic and social programs. For many people listening, however, Chris will be better known for his widely read blog, which is at chrisblackman.blogspot.com. And I've been trying to get you on to Development Drums for a while now, Chris. It's, it's great to have you on. Thanks. I, uh, I was successfully tricked this round into coming onto your program. My second guest is Todd Moss. Todd is Senior Fellow and Director of the Emerging Africa Project at the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. He recently returned after serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of African Affairs at the U.S. Department of State from 2007 to 2008. Todd's work focuses on U.S.-Africa relations and on the financial issues facing Sub-Saharan Africa. Todd is also the author of a very good book about development issues in Africa, African Development, Making Sense of the Issues and Actors, which I think is one of the most useful introductions for anyone interested in these issues. Todd, welcome to Development Drums. Thanks for having me, Owen. And Chris, you use Todd's book as a course text, don't you? Yeah, I use it sort of as the foundation for a, an undergraduate course I, I teach on development. It was a heartwarming day when I when I read that book and realized that my 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 job became a whole lot a whole lot easier. Excellent, excellent. So we're gonna we're gonna talk today about President Obama's speech, um, but use it as a vehicle for looking at the U.S. administration's policy towards Africa more generally. Now, several bloggers, including Bill Easterly and you, Chris have attempted to grade different parts of the speech. Um, so let's start with, with the overall perspective and with this section. We must start from the simple premise that Africa's future is up to Africans. I say this knowing full well the tragic past that has sometimes haunted this part of the world. After all, I have the blood of Africa within me. And my families, 
My family's own story encompasses both the tragedies and triumphs of the larger African story. Now, Chris, both you and Bill Easterly gave that an A+. As Bill pointed out, what the West, while the West can do some modest things to help African individuals, we don't really have the knowledge or power to transform African societies. So I assume we all agree that the argument that Africa's future is up to Africans is, is a premise that we can accept. Um, well, I think it's something that we, of course, would accept. Um, it's a little odd that we need to point that out in the case of Africa. I mean, I don't think anybody would say that Europe's future is in the hands of, uh, of another region. Um, so, of course, I think it's very, very welcome. I think that the tendency in Africa to, to blame outsiders is, is uh, a little bit too convenient sometimes. So it's good that he started off uh, on that note. And I think it's something that uh, it, it sets the right tenor uh, for both the speech and, and, and the policy. The one thing I would just note is that we've had uh, a version of this in the past. You know, 10 years ago, everyone was talking about African solutions to African problems. Um, and, and I'm not sure how much that, that really changed uh, the tendency to look uh, to the outside to come in and fix uh, uh, problems that are, that are still lingering in Africa. But as, Af but as Obama says himself in his speech, the West is at least in part responsible for some of Africa's problems. And he talks about the legacy of colonization. And he talks about a tendency to treat Africa as if we were a patron rather than a partner. So it, it seems from that as if uh, Africa's future isn't entirely up to Africans, because our policies and behaviors might have an impact on what happens next. Well, I think, again, you know, that's that's true for everyone. You know, what happens in the United States depends a lot on what China decides to do, on what Europe decides to do. Um, so I think part of the part of the the progression we've seen with Africa's relations with the rest of the world is that um, is that it is part of the global economy. It's part of the international community. And what happens on the outside uh, matters a lot. Uh, but that the primary responsibility and the primary driver of what happens in a particular country, uh, it depends on domestic forces. And I think we can see that particularly in Africa because we're getting such wide divergence among countries within Africa, where we've got a subset of countries that are starting to do things uh, uh, well, and they're really moving ahead out of the pack. And we're seeing a subset of countries that are not doing very well, and they're falling further and further behind. Um, so one, one point about this sort of regularizing Africa, thinking about it just like any normal uh, other region of the world, that I think was very positive about, about the Obama visit to Ghana, was that unlike President Clinton and President Bush, he did not start with a, a week-long five-country grand tour. He just came to Ghana for one day just like you would do for any other region. And in a sense, it was an early marker that, you know, we're going to treat Africa just like a regular region, like it deserves to be treated, not as some special uh, special uh, region that needs uh, a particular trip that gets, uh, you know, ring-fenced off from the rest of the world. So I think that's actually quite a very, uh, a very, very positive signal. Chris, do you buy the idea that Africa's future is entirely up to Africans? I know you said that you thought that we should be aware that our role, for example, in, in supporting some of the 
big men of Africa in the past has had a big influence on where Africa is today. Right. Well, I don't think we can discount, you know, the, the past. The, that, I, I did feel that the speech discounted the past perhaps a, a bit too heavily. But, but you know, it's, 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 a, it's a speech, it's a short speech, and, and he wanted to dwell on the future. So I, I think it was probably uh, appropriate, even if it sounded, I, I think, a little bit dismissive of, of you know, this, this past, which, you know, did not end in, in 1957 with Ghana's independence. There, there's been a, a great deal of meddling um, since then, and I, but the general message that Africa's future is up to Africans uh, is is um, it was good to say. I don't think it's entirely self-evident. I don't think it's always self-evident in Africa, but it's certainly not self-evident in the aid community or in the you know in the in the the public of the in in the Western public. And and that that made me wonder who the intended audience was for that that particular comment, whether it was Africa or whether it was um, us. And uh, uh, if I were well connected in the administration, which I am most most certainly not, that's that's actually one of the first questions I'd I'd love to ask them is what you know who are they who are they aiming at principally there? Now the president's speech focused on four themes: they were democracy and governance, growth and opportunity, health and conflict. So let let's take those in turn and start with what he says about governance. And in particular, he has a section on how outsiders can support good governance and fighting corruption in Africa. Here's what he says. But what America will do is increase assistance for responsible individuals and responsible institutions with a focus on supporting good governance, on parliaments, check abuses of power, ensure that opposition voices are heard, on the rule of law, which ensures the equal administration of justice, on civic participation so that young people get involved, and on concrete solutions to corruption like forensic accounting and automating services, strengthening hotlines, protecting whistleblowers to advance transparency and accountability. And we provide support. I have directed my administration to give greater attention to corruption in our human rights reports. People everywhere should have the right to start a business or get an education without paying a bribe. Now, Chris, you gave this a straight D in your grading of this uh, passage. That's a fail at Yale, isn't it? <laughs> I think a B- minus is a fail at Yale, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, so the... what, what's your problem? What, what... Well, well, a, a couple of problems. First, he starts with this big sweeping idea about governance very broadly, about the kinds of checks and, and balances that that were envisioned, you know, even in the, in the American Constitution, and and then he ends it with the concrete policy proposal being uh, sent in the accountants, and <clears throat> I just and, and and focusing on on petty corruption, and those seem to me to be very distinct issues, you know, this, the petty corruption one being just a, an order of magnitude less important and maybe just some small consequence of this this lack of, of, of balance of, of power within the majority of African countries. Um, I'm, I'm sure if there's an organization out there called Accountants Without Borders, I'm sure they're, they, they, had, they gave an excited cheer at that moment, but I, 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 don't, think, um, I don't think it's necessarily going to advance good governance in Africa or really lead to any change in, in, in corruption merely to sort of attack this, this culture of petty bribes. Tell, tell us a bit more about your distinction that you're making between petty corruption and, and small bribery and 
the balance of power. What, what, what is it that you think that, that Obama is failing to address here? Well, in, in, I think in, in well-functioning democracies, and in a, in, 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 if I can use the U.S. as an example, and that's not egocentric because I'm actually Canadian, uh, but and Canadian, Canada is actually a bad, bad example in some sense of a well-functioning democracy if only because power is actually very centralized in the prime minister we don't have a very powerful uh, upper house the, the 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 lower house generally just sort of follows the 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 ruling party's line um and in some sense we're just lucky in that uh, i think there are checks and balances in civil society and in the judiciary and, and as a consequence or maybe we're just, we've just been lucky with very benevolent leaders i'm not quite sure and and so as a consequence canada's you know been relatively well run um and and in africa that's not really the case you saw you know, relatively weak parliamentary systems, but parliamentary systems nonetheless at, at independence across the board. And those very quickly became centralized systems of power with uh, all of the military, judiciary, legislative, and budgetary might, you know, concentrated in the hand of not not just one one man, although, you know, the president was in charge, but maybe that, that, that cabal around the one man. and And that has really been what I think is at the root of a lot of this destructiveness. It, it, it means that there aren't checks on uh, abuses of power. It means that that, that that group or that cabal can get away with a great deal of corruption. It means they can't be held accountable for, for terrible failures, such as the failure to address petty corruption. And, it, and then it makes it very easy and desirable to capture that centralized power. And if you can't, through a coup or through a... Uh, an invasion, then then you can install yourself relatively easily at the helm, uh, good or bad. And and so this seems to me to be at the the root. And and he started off talking about that uh, in his first few sentences, and I started to get very excited. And then um, then the rest was just a complete letdown, as it, it's almost the policy implications kind of and the policy steps just missed the missed that larger point. Todd, is that your view that this? focus on corruption in a in an accounting sense misses the bigger picture of the economic and political troubles that uh that beset some countries and lead to these uh, these big men well uh, i i'm actually uh, quite a fan of some of these more boring uh kind of mechanisms that raise the cost of doing corruption and make it more likely uh that people will get caught so i think that you know, forensic accounting doesn't sound terribly exciting, but I think it actually can be quite useful. Um, I think protection of whistleblowers is a particular uh, problem, as we've seen a number of whistleblowers, you know, most most prominently uh, John Gotongo in Kenya, uh, not be protected. Um, and I think, you know, the issue of raising corruption more uh, uh, frontally is is a very positive step. I was glad uh, that he mentioned it. I think there there were two surprises I had though on the on what the prescriptions are. One is you know to include corruption in the human rights report. Okay, that makes sense, but it's not really very uh, aggressive step. Uh, those are quite long reports. I don't think they're actually that well read. Um, so you know that's useful, but it's not very con- you know it's not really going to change the the relationship between the United States and its development partners in Africa. But I think the more surprising thing was in talking about what he's directed his administration to do in terms of assistance, he didn't even mention the Millennium Challenge Corporation, uh, which is a a signature U.S. foreign assistance program 
designed specifically to target aid to countries with good governance. And there is a, uh, a corruption hurdle in the eligibility, eligibility process, uh, which, uh, which means that for a country to even be considered for an MCC compact, they have to be above the average on the World Bank's corruption score. And that's a, a really, you know, that program has been very high profile. And I think this would have been a chance for the administration to give that program a shot in the arm. And they chose not to even mention it. No, actually, can I, can I, um, can I ask Todd a question? Sure. Todd, so, uh, so I, 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 you know, I, don't, I wouldn't disagree. I think fighting corruption, forensic accounting, whatever types of uh, uh, standards we set for for giving aid, say through the MCC or other corp or other 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 sources, is, is obviously important. But I, I, we do face trade-offs in where we sort of focus our political energy. And what strikes me is is one that I'm not sure that that fight is the fight that I would choose on a governance level if I had to, to choose between different different agendas. Um, and and it's it's striking to me how much the discussion around Africa is about these these corruption issues, and how you you never hear anyone never hear anyone talk about um, uh, strengthening. Or you very seldom hear people talking about strengthening legislatures, uh, strengthening the press, a push for constitutional commissions that decentralize power be, you know, to a legislature, to a prime minister, to regional governors, to a move towards more federalism, towards decentralizing the budget and spending and taxation powers to, to districts or counties or states or whatever a given country may have. And, and it's that imbalance that I find really striking. Well, you know, I, I think that actually a lot of the things that you mentioned uh, are promoted uh, by outsiders, particularly the World Bank. Um, but I think that the focus, particularly the media, uh, has been on these anti-corruption commissions, uh, which go after, you know, high-level prosecutions. Uh, and that can be quite a powerful symbol. Um, but I think that we have to view these anti-corruption commissions as one, you know, very narrow uh, uh, weapon uh, that can actually have, that can quite quickly become politicized and, and actually perhaps in many ways undermine the fight. Uh, so I think, you know, the attention is not necessarily always on, on uh, some of the more mundane reforms, but, you know, I would agree with you, Chris, in, in the broad point that just, uh, you know, uh, uh, just talking about uh, about fighting corruption and having high-profile commissions is not necessarily the best way uh, to tackle the problem in the long term. And I think this speech just reinforces the the the, the lack of public debate and consciousness, whether it's within Africa or within the foreign policy or within the World Bank, about where this lack of debate and consciousness about this this broader governance agenda, and it, it almost hyper focuses it again on on the accounting and the, and the petty corruption. And, and I just thought that was a big disappointment. Yeah, the, the one point I might add is that I think the frustration in Africa uh, with uh, sort of donor tolerance of high level of corruption is quite, is quite strong. Uh, I think if, uh, Michaela Wrong's very good book about Kenya, it's our, it's our Turn to Eat, I think is just one example of that, that shows that I think quite a lot of Africans um, believe that, uh, you know, the West is just continually duped by leaders that are that are lining their own pockets while also receiving large sums of aid. So I think that's reflective of uh, uh, of a widely held belief in Africa.
Right. Although Obama didn't say uh, he didn't condemn, you know, Kenya's leadership for stealing 30 percent of GDP. Uh, he he condemned, uh, uh, you know, a policeman taking a bribe. And, and that's, you know, so 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 if, if indeed if, if if we were tackling uh, that that bigger question of, of that high level corruption where, where, you know, gazillions of dollars are being st- stolen, then then I, yeah, I think that might have been a, that would definitely would have been a step better. Yep, I, I'd agree. I'd like to move on, Todd. You mentioned the Millennium Challenge Corporation, as uh, which of course was an initiative of uh, President George W. Bush, um, uh, and there is a short passage in President Obama's speech about American aid and and the way that aid is given. And here's what he says: As Africans reach for this promise, America will be more responsive, extending our hand. By cutting costs that go to Western consultants and administration, we want to put more resources in the hands of those who need it, while training people to do more for themselves. And that's why our $3.5 billion food security initiative is focused on new methods and technologies for farmers, not simply sending American producers or goods to Africa. Todd, let's look at what President Obama seems to be saying here about the way that the U.S. gives aid. There's a reference to spending less on American consultants and to reforming food aid, but it seems quite a long way short from a more comprehensive reform of U.S. foreign assistance. And uh, it doesn't seem to be a big assault on the red tape and inefficiencies of uh, of U.S. aid in common with some other aid agencies. Do you think this is a sufficient agenda? Do you think that this is all, all there is uh, planned by this administration? Or do you think perhaps this wasn't the time and place to go into broader reforms of U.S. aid? Well, I think the focus on, on doing food aid smarter is uh, something that, uh, that the last administration tried and was unable to, to get done. And it, it's a, it is a good area uh, to focus on. So I was very glad to see that, particularly increasing the, the cash contributions uh, so you can buy from local markets rather than, than having to wait the four months to ship it from, uh, from a silo in Kansas uh, to, to the Horn of Africa. Um, I was also really pleased to see that he wasn't making grand pledges for uh, new aid targets, uh, something that uh, that I think has probably run its course uh, for the next couple of years. Um, the, you know, I think it, it's easy to, to attack administrative costs and consultants. Um, we've actually seen USAID spend a lot more money uh, over the last few years. You know, the U.S., uh, foreign assistance budget to Africa has uh, almost uh, quadrupled uh, over the last uh, eight years. And we, at the same time, we haven't seen staffing numbers go up at USAID. And that's actually start, started to become a, a capacity constraint uh, for dispersing money, for managing and overseeing contracts. Uh, so I think that, that uh, you know, nobody likes high administrative costs. Um, but in, a, in the real world, you actually need people to, uh, to, to oversee and manage money. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that that's uh, not necessarily uh, uh, the, the ideal focus for fixing a U.S. foreign assistance. What we have seen, what, what we have seen uh, from the administration is really uh, not very much in the first six months. Clearly, foreign assistance 
uh, was an issue that the that the campaign was was thinking about, but it has not been a priority of the administration. We still do not have a USAID uh, administrator, uh, and the whole process of foreign assistance reform, which is both sort of reorganizing the the bureaucracy and also finding a mechanism for setting strategy. Uh, we still haven't seen any progress there, and I think that's where uh, where the attention will have to focus. I mean, I, I, on that point about the administrative costs, I'd agree that there's um, it's it's certainly not on my top five list of where I think you know Obama ought to focus his gaze, uh, and and you know there can be a tendency to navel gaze if I think if you work at an aid agency and just to focus on internal reforms rather than some of the bigger issues, but but you know. It, it's true, and it's true in the real world that there are administrative costs. But you know, it's, as someone who sort of, I feel like I'm often in the quote-unquote real world, you know, in northern Uganda, or Liberia, or elsewhere, uh, working with donors, working with NGOs who are trying to get programs funded, and and in my case, trying to get programs plus research funded, uh, USAID is just uh, second to UNDP as as just sort of this behemoth that it's not even worth sometimes applying to. Or, or trying to work with because it's just so difficult and frustrating and expensive. And I say that as someone who, you know, works regularly with other UN agencies, which are difficult and frustrating and expensive and, and, and to, to, in terms of admin costs. And, and I've been told by a very excited USAID a senior person in one of the countries where I work that he would love to support the programs, he would love to support the research, but frankly warned me just a way to, he actually pointed me towards uh, a UN agency for funding because he just said it would just be too difficult, impossible, expensive and lengthy to even bother trying to get this funded through USAID. And, and that sort of struck a real chord with me. So more bureaucratic than the UN, that's going to hurt. <laughs> not, not more than the UNDP, but uh, perhaps every other UN agency that I've encountered. The uh, the second theme was uh, what he what President Obama described as opportunity, and um, let's look uh, at the language here on trade. And here's what President Obama has to say: Aid is not an end in itself. The purpose of foreign assistance must be creating the conditions where it's no longer needed. I want to see. Ghanaians not only self-sufficient in food, I want to see you exporting food to other countries and earning money. You can do that. Now, America can also do more to promote trade and investment. Wealthy nations must open our doors to goods and services from Africa in a meaningful way. That will be a commitment of my administration. Chris, I know you said that you thought the absence of a real commitment on trade was the biggest flaw in the speech. How important do you think it is to make progress on trade policy? Um, I don't know if I thought it was the biggest flaw. I'm going to mostly defer to, to Todd on trade here because uh, he knows a great deal. I know very little. The, what, I, what I do know comes from uh, a few years ago before my you know, a few months before my my uh, I met my wife and 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 ran off after her to study conflict and child soldiering. I was actually working in Kenya uh, with the World Bank doing some firm and worker surveys in the manufacturing sector. 
and what struck me the most from from talking to these firm owners and and looking at the manufacturing manufacturing se sector in Kenya was just the ebb and flow of business and staffing and investment that accompanied the uncertainty around whether or not the Africa uh, whether or not the US was going to renew the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act which was giving preferential uh, treatment to among other things textile firms many of which were based in in Kenya and and this this volatility and this this sort of lack of stability in terms of are they going to renew it and 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 are we going to have how long are we going to have this treatment something that was generating a lot of of manufacturing investment that would suddenly plummet as the date to renewal or non-renewal uh, came and that struck me as inherently uh, damaging that volatility in the manu manufacturing sector might even be worse than not doing it at all Todd the uh, the president's speech did seem to fall quite a long way short of saying that the US will extend uh, the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act, let alone that it will uh, provide stable and predictable access to U.S. markets. It said nothing that, of the sort. It said nothing of that, right. So uh, do we think that with Democrats on the Hill and in the White House, the administration will be keen to make progress on uh, opening up U.S. markets to African exports? Well, let me make, uh, let me make just a couple points on trade. You know, right now, because of AGOA, uh, Ninety-seven percent of the of the trade that that comes from Africa into the U.S. comes in uh, duty-free, quota-free. So clearly, market access is not the major barrier um, to African exporting into the U.S. Uh, Chris's point that you have to go back and renew AGOA every uh, couple of years and that creates uncertainty is absolutely correct. Uh, certainly, AGOA would be much better if it was made permanent. Um, but I think we've got two, you know, two barriers that I think you're hinting at, uh, Owen, to that. One is that the unions in the United States are not great fans of, of, uh, of free trade agreements like AGOA, uh, and they've not been keen, particularly that's why there's so many additional textile provisions in AGOA that makes it very hard uh, for African textile producers to, to export into the U.S., even though that's supposedly one of the uh, one of the sectors that it's supposed to help. But it's uh, beyond that, that the additional trade barriers that Africa faces vis-a-vis -vis the United States, the things that that the Africans particularly complain about are subsidies for cotton and sugar are not going to be dealt with bilaterally between Africa and the United States, but are going to be dealt with at the WTO in the Doha uh, round of discussions, which right now are stalled. And quite frankly, those issues will be decided between uh, the big emerging markets, Europe, Japan, and the United States, rather than Africa really being a, a player at the negotiating table on something like uh, sugar subsidies. So that sounds as if you're not very optimistic that there'll be much progress on this agenda. Well, on the one hand, I'm, I'm not that optimistic that we're going to have a very robust Doha agreement soon or that we'll have a, a, a big new U.S.-Africa trade policy. That's true. But on the other hand, I just don't think that on the, on the list of priorities of things holding back African manufacturing, uh, that U.S. trade barriers actually feature quite high on that list. Uh, some very, very good uh, data-driven research uh, by some of my colleagues including uh, Vij Ramachandran and Alan Gelb at the World Bank, point to things like uh, electricity, uh, transportation costs, uh, and access to certain kinds of finance in Africa as much, much bigger barriers uh, than, than trade right now.
That's true, but I feel like giving an incentive, a, a, an added incentive for for this more outward orientation, this export orientation, um, you know, would would be a, a a big help in strengthening the you know the groups within these countries, especially the the, the nascent manufacturing sectors in places like Kenya and Uganda, to to sort of gain even leverage in their own country's policy. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true, but you know, marginal changes to AGOA. Uh, I don't think are going to be a, a huge bump uh, to, to African exporters. It'll help a little bit. But I do think the the other issue that, that Owen mentioned that's uh, got a lot of potential is on the private investment side. There is an investment component to AGOA, and there's actually quite a large public policy uh, angle for many of the European donors. The United States, Canada do have private sector uh, investment arms. In the United States, it's the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which has been setting up uh, private equity funds. They set up uh, 13 uh, private equity funds that target sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, they've actually been, e- even though the, the international investment environment's been tough in the last 12 months, they've actually been quite successful in, uh, in generating private investment into things like private health care, into infrastructure, uh, and into some of the sectors that we'd really like to see take off in, in Africa. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, and my guests Chris Blackman and Todd Moss. And we're talking about US policy towards Africa and President Obama's speech on Saturday, July 11th, 2009. The third theme that President Obama addressed is health. And one of the challenges that uh, the aid world faces is the growth of these big single-issue global funds, such as the um, Global Alliance for Vaccines Immunization and the Global Funds for AIDS, TB and Malaria, which have, and in the case of the US government, PEPFAR, the, uh, the initiative on AIDS, which have tended to attract resources away from the much less sexy business of building up countries' own health systems. And President Obama addressed this problem head on. Yet, because of incentives often provided by donor nations, many African doctors and nurses go overseas or work for programs that focus on a single disease. And this creates gaps in primary care and basic prevention. The part about focusing on a single disease went down well with Bill Easterly and indeed another, a number of other people interested in supporting African health systems. But Chris, you had a problem with the reference to doctors and nurses going overseas. What's the issue here? Well, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't rank this in terms of my top problems with the, uh, uh, with, with the speech, but it, it's emblematic of the fact that there's sort of these, these little issues that 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 the people love to plug in one is the petty corruption that we discussed before and it's you know i just don't think it's that important and the other is this doctors and nurses thing which is you know an issue and important but not anywhere near the top of the agenda so to get the sort of attention that it got uh in in his speech strikes me as as odd and and, and on the one hand and disappointing on the other um it's not clear to me that it's really a, a big problem for a few reasons one is that you know giving you know i think going abroad to become a nurse or a doctor is sort of like winning the lottery uh, except it's a lottery where you can you can change your odds by investing in education and in in theory you would think this would just bring lots more qualified uh, intelligent uh, people into the health sector i guess it'll bring lots of unqualified less intelligent people in the health sector as well 
uh, so the but but that so it could actually lead to a big increase in the number of people who are trying to train in Africa to become nurses and doctors. And since visas are scarce, a lot of them will end up staying. Now, I'd be worried if if there was evidence that we're stealing the good ones and all the 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 bad ones are are being left behind. But I I don't know of any evidence that that's that that's true at all. Um, and then you know I was reading uh, an African business magazine, which is actually not really about African business, but it's often about African politics and policy, and uh, excellent publication. And and one of the columnists, a Kenyan named Wycliffe uh, Muga, uh, said, and I you know, I don't you know I don't I'm not his fact checker, but he said that there's a third of nurses in in Kenya uh, uh, unemployed, at least in 2006, that there was just one Kenyan nurse living abroad for every two unemployed ones at home. And then the last time Kenya's nurses asked for a raise, which I think was 2001 or 2002, the government sacked the entire group that were uh, asking for uh, a wage increase and then replaced them all with this big pool of unemployed nurses who are willing to work for the lower wage. So so this makes me think that that there is a big supply of of qualified people to uh, do to, to give health care. And the problem is not us stealing them away. Todd, do you think the brain drain is a cause of Africa's problems, either in general or in the health sector? Would you like to see more migration from Africa or less? Well, I think I think Chris's point is exactly is exactly right. You know, this common fact that you always that that's always thrown around that there are more, you know, about how many thousands of Kenyan nurses are working in the NHS in the UK ignores the fact that there are huge stocks of unemployed nurses in a place like Kenya uh, who face all kinds of incentives uh, to work in a different in a different sector of the economy or to not work at all. Uh, and the induced human capital that, that Chris refers to, I think, is a very, very powerful effect that we've seen in places like the Philippines. Um, so my, my personal view is that, uh, and, you know, my family, certain, certainly the greatest change that ever happened in the history of my family was moving from uh, a very poor Eastern European country to the United States. You know, the circularity of, of people uh, is probably the greatest boon uh, to development certainly orders of magnitude greater than uh, than what we can make up for in something like foreign assistance or uh, free trade agreements. So I, I'm a huge proponent of uh, uh, of increased migration. Um, the, the point uh, that that you uh, that you made about the the vertical health funds, I don't think that the real criticism of that is that it's that is that it's it's drawing doctors in, into fighting HIV AIDS. I think the problem uh, has been that um, there was not enough resources going in to fight uh, HIV-AIDS uh, 10 years ago, and that to get that political momentum, particularly to get some constituencies like the religious communities in the United States on board as not just supporters but active lobbyists for fighting HIV-AIDS, it had to be made very simple. You are not going to get uh, people riled up over supporting uh, health systems. And what we've seen uh, PEPFAR uh, and some of the other programs do, I think actually quite, quite uh, overtly and, and increasingly successfully, is to transition from just fighting HIV AIDS to trying to use that money to leverage broader health systems. And that makes sense uh, politically, and that also makes sense, I think, uh, developmentally, 
because you can't just fight, uh, you can't just build an infrastructure to fight one disease because it's integrated with things like nutrition and basic health. Uh, so I think we're starting to see that transition now, and we will start to see much more flexibility in the use of HIV AIDS funds uh, for things like health systems. Uh, and the risk there is that we may undermine uh, some of the political support uh, for uh, using taxpayer dollars uh, for those purposes. Todd, I think you might be understating the uh, potential damage that can be done by having these uh, vertical programs. Um, here in Ethiopia, um, for example, this is a bit anecdotal, but it's, I think, quite illustrative. Um, I've heard about people saying that actually they now rather wish they had HIV AIDS because if they did, they would be able to send their kids to school free, they'd get free health care, uh, they'd be put on work programs, all because there's so much money flooding into uh, AIDS programs here and very little money, I mean really very little money indeed, going into basic health care. Now AIDS is, is not Ethiopia's biggest uh, health challenge by some distance um, and although it's important that there's proper funding for it, it does seem that, that there has been a distortion arising from the AIDS programs that have left other health programs systematically underfunded and often under-resourced in terms of attracting doctors and nurses and, and other, um, other kinds of resources away from the health system. So I don't think you can quite say, well, this was just additional political pressure and resources for AIDS, and that's a good thing. I think there, I think there has been a cost to the rest of the health system. And to add an well, anecdote, the um, you know it's interesting you're in a place like Liberia where the HIV/AIDS infection rate is is extremely low. Obviously, pre prevention efforts after war are very important, so it's good to see dollars pouring in. But but it's it's perhaps the least of the health worries on, on by some measure in Liberia. But it's it's one where the most funds are available, and so you get this paradox. But but Todd, what I'd be interested to hear you uh, say is you, you I think you were alluding to the idea that. Hey, the, the 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 global fund and and PEPFAR and they're aware of this issue and maybe they're, you know, they're they're maybe I don't are they ideologically committed to sticking to their sticking to their their single disease focus or or do you think that that this is a problem that's going to start to work itself out? Well, look, I think it's obviously absurd to have uh, an HIV-AIDS budget uh, that's five times uh, the, uh, the national health budget in any country. I think everyone would agree about that. But when you're talking about using public policy dollars uh, and allocating them to specific things, you often get these distortions because uh, these are inherently political decisions. If you look in the United States at the at the uh, difference between the defense budget and the diplomacy budget, uh, there you know orders of magnitude difference, and people would say this is obviously massively distorting U.S. foreign assistance. Well, that's true, but it's not it's not a, a random accident. It's the result of a very deliberate political process and the constituencies that lobby lobby for certain kinds of budgets. And I think it's unrealistic to expect that our foreign assistance or our global health budgets would be immune to those same kinds of political pressures. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't try to use those processes uh, to leverage a better balance. Um, just as the State Department is trying to leverage some of the defense budget to its own needs, uh, we can leverage the in immense, incredible, uh, historical support for uh, global health investments targeting HIV-AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, and leverage that 
uh, to tackle some other diseases that public health officials may think would represent a bigger balance. Um, we, you know, the global health budget got a shock with uh, with this super increase in uh, in 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 uh, in money over the last uh, six or eight years, uh, and so we're now adjusting uh, to that that reality. And one one example, I, I believe the new chair of the global fund is the uh, uh, just named, I believe yesterday, the the Ethiopian health minister. So he should be in a particularly strong position to help influence. Uh, the flexibility of those funds. I think that's absolutely right, and, and he he is uh, an exceptionally charismatic uh, advocate for the need for more integrated health planning. So let, let's hope that 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 does make a uh, a difference. And finally, President Obama's fourth theme is conflict. He says rather gracefully that Africa is not the crude caricature of a continent at perpetual war, but he does highlight the damage that conflict does. America has a responsibility to work with you as a partner to advance this vision, not just with words, but with support that strengthens African capacity. When there is a genocide in Darfur or terrorists in Somalia, these are not simply African problems, they are global security challenges and they demand a global response. And that's why we stand ready to partner through diplomacy and technical assistance and logistical support, and we will stand behind efforts to hold war criminals accountable. And let me be clear, our Africa Command is focused not on establishing a foothold in the continent, but on confronting these common challenges to advance the security of America, Africa, and the world. Chris, you're one of those who thinks that conflict is by far and away the biggest obstacle to development in Africa, and you've praised President Bush for the direct way that he helped to put a stop to wars in places like Liberia, South Sudan, Cote d'Ivoire, Sierra Leone. On the basis of this speech, did you think that President Obama will do a good job, as, uh, as good a job as you say President Bush did? Well, well, I have no idea because he didn't really say anything very specific, and and so it's hard to tell what the policy is going to be. That said, you know, I really don't know what was successful about the last uh, ten years in terms of reducing conflict, and and we saw Bush make it a focus, or the Bush administration make it a focus, and we saw it go down. And I think those two things are related. But Todd can probably provide maybe more insight on on if I'm I'm mistaken or if those are just coincidences. The 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 thing is that we've seen the number of active and ongoing civil wars plummet in the last years. There are a lot of regions in Africa that are still uh, uh, unstable, even if not there's not uh, active fighting. So Cote d'Ivoire is an example. Uh, South Sudan and northern Uganda and Central African Republic, where the Lord's Resistance Army and other sort of uh, uh, dormant guerrilla groups are, uh, is another example. Then we see a lot of violence in eastern Congo. So there's there's a lot of things that could turn into active civil wars that, for some reason, are not. And and I and I'm I'm actually very curious to hear from Todd what he saw inside the Bush administration if, if he saw cause and effect between this push for stopping these wars and, and what worked. Because I would just like to see more of that in, uh, in 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 this administration at at a bare minimum. So Todd, what worked, and do you think President Obama is going to do more of it? 
Well, I think the administration, you know, rightfully put a lot of emphasis on uh, conflict resolution. I'd agree with Chris that it's it's the single, you know, most important thing that that pushes people into poverty and can, you know, in a day wipe out 20 years worth of uh, worth of progress. Um, the administration, you know, quite proudly would trumpet that seven uh, major conflicts in Africa ended uh, on the Bush administration watch. Um, and in several of those, the administration was uh, very directly involved in uh, negotiating the end and putting pressure on some of the combatants to, to, to find a resolution. So I think you know, active engagement uh, can produce a lot of results. Uh, active engagement certainly doesn't guarantee uh, results, particularly in very complicated uh, situations where uh, American influence and resources are, are, by the nature of the problem, going to be very limited. Um, with the United States fighting major wars in uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, the resources available for uh, for trying to find a resolution in other places is is almost by definition uh, diminished. Um, I think what's what the new administration uh, is left with are a couple of the really tough uh, cases. Uh, Darfur, uh, Eastern Congo, uh, and Somalia in, in particular. Uh, and in Sudan, I think we've got uh, a very, very dangerous situation where um, uh, despite extremely high level attention uh, to, to this problem, uh, Sudan continues to threaten uh, to blow up again, both the North-South and the lack of a peace agreement in Darfur. And we've got a referendum uh, and uh, elections coming up in Sudan, which could uh, spark, uh, provide a spark for um, uh, for renewed conflict, and that will happen in the next uh, within the next two years. So I think the urgency has uh, has accelerated. And what do you think the administration should do? This strikes me as one of the most difficult uh, and puzzling sort of policy areas. Uh, on the on the planet, I, I, how how to uh, build stronger states and how to reduce the level of conflict and whether or not those two things are in opposition with one another. There are scholars and, and, and others who argue that places like Latin America and Europe are more stable state-wise uh, because they had a chance to fight it out and achieve more stable political equilibria, which essentially is means there was a victor and a loser, and and uh, uh, that meant that the fighting would would stop and states could solidify and businesses could develop. Uh, I, in my own mind, haven't really decided whether or not I think that's true. Even if it is true, I don't think it's the path forward. I don't think the policy answer is to let Africa fight it out. I think we can probably inventively find better ways and Africans can find better ways to build stronger states and business sectors and things than through conflict in the future. So it's just not an option. But, but how do we create, uh, uh, how, do we, how do we reduce these conflicts? And I, and I do think that one of the reasons we see wars is because the people who start them, the people who make the decisions to fight, whether it's a guerrilla leader or a president or both, uh, do so because they're not internalizing these costs of war. They're, they're really just thinking about their, the personal potential for gains or, or for their particular group or cabal. And, and what the role of an outsider can do, and that outsider could be the African Union or neighboring countries or the U.S. or Europe or ideally everybody together, 
can be to sort of be that third party enforcer to sort of force that person to internalize the costs or to come up with other costs for them that that makes it very undesirable for them to to um, to move into to sort of violence. The the question then becomes okay. In the majority of cases, we'll now have successfully avoided war, but we've preserving we're preserving unstable political equilibria like we're seeing in zimbabwe and kenya and cote d'ivoire and do we know how or do africans know how or does anybody know how to move these to actual stable uh states that that aren't going to erupt in war the minute uh, our our vigilance uh, uh uh diminishes todd if you were in state department under this administration what would you be recommending as ways to bring stability in what appear at the moment to be unstable equilibria? Well, I think the the one area where we still underinvest, and I, I don't mean just about the United States, um, which spends a lot of money in this area, but as an international community, is in peacekeeping. Uh, it is very expensive to do this, but it's actually quite cost-effective, uh, and it seems to have uh, uh, extremely high developmental uh, benefits uh, and other kinds of benefits. So I, I think that we could certainly improve uh, um, uh, our activity there. Uh, the one thing I would say, just to, to pull something out from from the uh, from the Obama speech and from some of the criticisms that I've read on the web, um, is about Africom, uh, the Africa Command, which you know really has just gotten a, a level of attention way out of scale to the importance of, uh, of what it is. Uh, it's actually quite a, a, a mundane sort of reorganization of U.S. global military uh, combatant commands. It's not a major new push. Africa, Africa Command comes with uh, zero new troops. Um, and what you've basically just done is taken uh, parts of the different European uh, and other commands and just consolidated them in one office. And it's really a, a way to make sure that, uh, that uh, what the U.S. military thinks about in Africa is, uh, is done in a strategic sense and not done only as the kind of leftover fourth priority of a bunch of other commanders that have bigger problems uh, 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 to deal with. So it's it wouldn't actually, surprise me, though, if that uh, – it wouldn't surprise me if, it, if the main rationale within the military might have been let's get the guys who are actually focusing on the other issues to ha stop having to focus on this pointless bunch of Africa issues, you know, in some sense to try to discard it down the ladder to a, a, a different general who could, you know, worry about that mess. Well, it's certainly the case if you're responsible for Eastern Europe uh, and also, uh, you know, some parts of Africa that your your attention is going to be focused elsewhere and you're not going to be able to build the internal um, uh, knowledge and capability to actually deal with um, a particular region of the world that faces quite different challenges. You know, thinking about what U.S. military should be doing in Germany uh, is totally different from thinking about what's the appropriate role of the U.S. military uh, in West Africa. Uh, and so trying to build that knowledge inside the, the, the military, I think, is quite positive. Uh, a lot of the African press completely, you know, partly the, uh, the fault of the Pentagon for getting the rhetoric ahead of the reality, uh, you know, just really had a, a fit that this was about um, naval bases and uh, colonization or, you know, about it was about oil access. And it's really uh, it's really not about any of those things. 
Do you think, given the importance, Todd, that you've attached to peacekeeping, uh, that it's a pity that President Obama didn't talk more about the African Union, and indeed didn't talk at all about the African Union, and the role that it's increasingly playing in promoting peace and security in Africa? He really didn't talk about regional institutions much at all. Uh, that that's right. You know, I think uh, there, there's there, there's a lot of uh, of unrealistic sort of rose colored views of regional organizations. Um, there isn't much evidence that 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 African governments themselves put much stock. Uh, you know, they don't cede much authority to the regional uh, organizations. They don't fund them. Uh, so, you know, they've been almost across the board uh, a huge disappointment. The one exception I would say is is the African Union, um, which, uh, you know, I was quite skeptical when they just, uh, you know, chopped off one letter of the acronym and it was still the same old um, uh, 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 same old organization of the past. Let me just explain to people that you're referring to the move from the Organization of African Unity, which was set up in 1963 as something of a of a liberation organization. And it was rebranded as the African Union much more modeled on the European Union uh, and uh, that's the letter that's the chopping off of the letter but it was a, it was a more fundamental change in that wasn't it I mean it was a conscious move on from the liberation uh, structure of the OAU in the past yes well that's 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 what that's that that's absolutely correct and I actually think that the AU has done surprisingly well in dealing with uh, with coup d'etats in Africa and they've been quite firm uh, in a number of areas, in ways that the old OAU never would have been. So that's been very positive. What I think the problem uh, that lingers is that it is still an organization, it is still a club of mostly um, uh, bad governments, uh, and they have, when necessary, circled the wagons to, to protect each other. And I think you need no better example of that than, than the AU's uh, total weakness um, in, in dealing with the uh, dealing with the Zimbabwe situation. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the African Union certainly has great potential. It's still very young. Um, some of the commissioners are extremely capable uh, people. Uh, and I think we're uh, only going to see the AU get stronger. Chris, would you have liked to have seen more specifics on the uh, conflict uh Part of this speech, and uh, do you have a sense of what uh, what you would be recommending if you were um, trying to advise this administration on how to tackle the kind of conflicts that you study and work on in Africa? Okay, I, I guess I see a few things. I um, I agree with Todd that the the AU is can be weak and, and can be dithering on certain issues like Zimbabwe. That's that's probably true of any. Uh, international organization, the UN, because of the way the Security Council is structured, is is weak and dithering and ineffective on on countries that are of strategic interest to its members. This is always going to be true, and so that's maybe a good reason why we have lots of different of these potential sources of peacekeeping forces. Strengthening the AU's capacity to to peacekeep is is strikes me as very important. Um, Mahmoud Mandani in his you know, book on, on Darfur, uh, Saviors and Survivors, accuses the, the, the U.S. and the U.N., and I think he's probably right of, of actually really undermining the effectiveness of the, or, or at least not seeking to strengthen the AU peacekeeping force because 
they would like to see an international peacekeeping force. And that's certainly not the way to sort of build the capacity of, of Africans and African nations to police other places when there's the political will to do so, uh, as there seems to be in this case. But but more broadly, um, this 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 first point, which I started out with, which is about this this broader uh, sense of governance, is that I think one of the, and, and, and seeking for checks and balances, I think one of the outcomes of having uh, uh, more checks and balances and more balance of power, strengthen legislatures, strengthen judiciaries, freer presses, uh, stronger civil societies, uh, is that it gives opposition groups, a one, a voice, and two, an opportunity to pursue power through peaceful means. And as so long as we do not see the opportunity to, to achieve power, to, to achieve change, social change in one's country, uh, to achieve wealth for, for good or for ill through peaceful means, I think we're going to see it and continue to see it through violent means. And, and so this, this attention to the, the smaller governance issues uh, in, in the absence of a real public debate about decentralization and powers and checks and balances is, is, is fundamentally what's going to drive conflict in the long run. We have to find an alternative route other than warfare and victors to create stable political equilibria. And I think, I think my hunch is that's it. Thanks, Chris. So overall, we've got a sense from this speech of what the Obama administration's approach to Africa might be. Todd, you served in the State Department working on African affairs under President Bush. What's your sense of whether and how this administration will have a different policy on Africa than the last administration? Where do you think it's going to go and, and what do you think, what, what would you be advising it to do overall? Well, I think given, given the president's uh, personal links to, to Africa, he's in a unique position to, uh, to have influence and to take the U.S.-Africa partnership to, to the next level. Um, and I think uh, the issue will be whether he's able to focus the resources of the U.S. government to, to actually try to achieve that. Now, obviously, I worked in the previous administration, so uh, I'm slightly biased. But I do think, having watched Africa policy in Washington, D.C. for uh, uh, almost 20 years now, that the Bush administration elevated Africa within the foreign policy hierarchy to a degree that we've never seen before. Um, the attention on Africa was greater than we've ever seen. That's reflected in things like the budget, in things like the number of meetings, in, in the level of engagement that we've had. Um, and that the, the record, the Bush record in Africa is actually incredibly positive and something that the, that the new administration I don't think necessarily needs to run away from. And I think that's something that they, that they actually recognize. Uh, the basic pillars on which the U.S.-Africa partnership stand in terms of political freedom and democracy and ending conflict, uh, fighting uh, disease, promoting economic opportunity, those are fundamental bedrock American uh, national interests, and those also do not change uh, when the administration changes. Um, I certainly have found that there's just not that much partisanship within the Africa policy community. So I do not expect, all, for all of those reasons, I do not expect major changes. In fact, I think the challenge that the administration is going to face is actually trying to maintain that level of engagement given the economic situation in the world, given the uh, very strong pull that the foreign policy community will get toward Pakistan, toward China, 
Um, it's actually extraordinary, I think, the, the level that Africa uh, ha has reached. And I think just trying to keep that and to manage the expectations within Africa itself about what the U.S. can and is willing to achieve, uh, I think, will be, will be the big challenges. Chris, you gave the speech overall an A minus, I think, which is a pretty good mark from a professor at Yale. Are you optimistic that uh, President Obama will do enough on Africa? What would you What would you be advising overall? Well, uh, considering that that uh, Yale students customarily get fifty percent A's or A minuses, maybe it's not quite so generous. Uh, but but I do sincerely. I did like it as a speech. It's easy to point out the flaws. I think I was disappointed on the lack of uh, specificity on, on some of the bigger questions like conflict and governance. But, you know, what do we expect from a from a short political speech on the first on the first uh, visit to Africa? What, what there's been a lack of is just clarity on on what the Africa policy is going to be uh, going forward. And, and that would that would excite me. Uh, in in you know the coming months is a sense from somebody in the administration, probably Johnny Carson, I suppose, uh, to really lay out uh, uh, where what what the strategic focus is going to be and how they feel about some of these issues. I think the reason I I liked it overall is because it was it was this message of optimism and hope, and it was a focus on a and a on a successful country and on how to be successful and on taking responsibility and looking towards the future and you know that's that's something that that you know sometimes surprisingly to me isn't isn't said more often and it's it would be a wonderful message and perspective for the aid community uh in general to adopt. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader in Ethiopia, and with Chris Blackman at uh, Yale and Todd Moss at the Centre for Global Development. Chris, Todd, thanks very much for coming on Development Drums. Thank you. Thanks, Owen. Ghana, freedom is your inheritance. Now it is your responsibility to build upon freedom's foundation. And if you do, we will look back years from now to places like Accra and say, this was the time when the promise was realized. This was the moment when prosperity was forged, when pain was overcome, and a new era of progress began. This can be the time when we witness the triumph of justice once more. Yes, we can. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Development Drums. I'm Owen Barder, and my guests today have been Todd Moss and Chris Blattman. Thanks to both of them. Thanks too to my father, Brian Barder, for making Development Drums possible. It's he that arranges the links between me here in Addis Ababa and far-flung places such as, in today's episode, Washington DC and Connecticut. You can download Development Drums from iTunes or from our website, developmentdrums.org. And you can join the Development Drums group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. President Obama, Obama. Yeah. Welcome to the land of gold. The land of gold. Welcome to Ghana. Uh, yeah. 